0: You're listening to the DST podcast. Get ready to grow your wealth with insights and investment strategies for making tax-efficient real estate investments in Delaware statutory trust 1031 exchanges. And now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. About 20 years ago, Delaware statutory trusts were approved for 1031 exchanges and, and that really changed the game for real estate investors. A, a 1031 could now be fractionalized and owned passively and more recently, as my viewers and listeners are well aware, Opportunity Zones came into law in 2017, and the zones themselves were designated in 2018, really changing the game once again for investors, particularly investors with gains. And today, I'm speaking with someone who has been at the forefront of both of these game-changing events. My guest today is Keith Lampy, President and CEO of Inland Private Capital Corporation, Keith joins me today from Inland headquarters in Oak Brook, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Keith, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Keith. Uh, Really pleased to have you with us today joining the podcast, and and we're going to dive in. We're going to talk about DSTs and how Inland has grown alongside the adoption of of that nearly 20-year-old investment vehicle, and we're also going to talk about how Inland moved into opportunity zones just in the last few years now. But first, Keith, uh, I want to make it personal. I want to start with you. Uh, Inland's really well-regarded and trusted in the private equity real estate industry. And I talk with folks in the real estate industry pretty frequently. And every single person I've talked to has a lot of respect for Inland and and what you're doing. You guys are the largest DST sponsor. uh, A lot of clout that comes with Inland Private Capital. So I want to know, Keith, how did you become to how did you manage to become the CEO of Inland Private Capital at a relatively young age? Can you tell me about your career trajectory? Essentially, tell me the story of how you got to where you are today.
1: Now, it's nice of you to say. I, they used to say I looked young. I don't. I don't get that as much anymore. So that <laughs> nice every once in a while to hear that. Um, so my, you know, my my journey's been uh, been sort of one of a kind. I think a lot of people feel that way when it's personal, but. Um, I started with Inland uh, a little over 20 years ago, about 21 years ago, um, and when I did, uh, the firm was obviously very well established uh, as, as kind of a, a, a bigger picture player in, in all things commercial real estate, um, but we were at a very kind of ground level in establishing our securitized 1031 exchange platform. Um, so I kind of got in at the ground level, um, I would say, I kind of say this tongue-in-cheek, but our our organization as a, as a subsidiary of the Inland Group was really more of a more of an idea than a, than a company at the time. And we, you know, like many companies, uh, we just established one building block at a time, uh, took a very thoughtful, measured approach to, to growing the business. And that that certainly served us well. Um, now, having been through a, a handful of cycles, a couple of black swan events, right, uh, with, with the financial crisis, and then and ultimately the pandemic and you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is each time we face that, that, that type of uncertainty um, as a, a, you know, from an economy perspective, we were able to come out the other side actually stronger than we were when, when, when that period of dislocation began. And I think that speaks to the, the virtues of the team. And, and I think this, this, uh, the, the values of the, the principles of the organization just kind of having a long-term lens through which they, uh, they view the market
0: great well let's talk about uh, DSTs now. Inland uh, is obviously been incredibly successful, largely because DSTs have been incredibly successful over the last twenty years. I'm sure my my audience of high net worth and high net worth investors and advisors are are quite familiar with with inland. Uh, they've they've grown as DSTs have grown. but uh, let's let's start at square one with regard to Delaware statutory trust. and we'll we'll talk DSTs for a little while before we get into Opportunity Zones. But Keith, can you take us back to the beginning? Uh, how did DSTs come into existence and come to be known uh, as what we know them today?
1: Sure. Yeah. It, it, again, a big, of, a big part of that journey I just described. So what's interesting is, yeah, I mean, DSTs are, are effectively an investment vehicle that anchor on Section 1031 of the tax code. And Section 1031 has been on the books for over 100 years, so it's a very, very well-seasoned provision within the IRS tax code. Um, But there was this idea in the late '90s, early 2000s, around what if a property owner sold an asset and wanted to exchange into a, a fractionalized ownership interest in real estate? How how might that structure work? What what you know what pitfalls would we have to kind of think through and you no, know, a group of uh, you know industry professionals, Inland was was at the forefront here, kind of gathered and 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 kind of came to came to grips with a structure that it believed worked, and 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 you know white papers were written, and we we sort of lobbied the IRS to to give us feedback on on whether or not we were on the right page, right track. Um, so initially, in the early two thousands, the tick structure, tendency and common structure, was was very much in vogue. Um, in 04, the IRS issued guidance surrounding the use of a Delaware statutory trust, um, which had a lot of uh, a, a lot more investor-friendly uh, provisions within it. So the industry sort of naturally gravitated toward it. And you know, Section 1031 was a powerful nuance within the tax code that Inland had been using um, with with other funds for for a number of years on a on a property property by property perspective, but when we when we received this this guidance and feedback from the IRS, it really did sort of springboard the industry into relevance um there was there was greater upstream adoption throughout uh, a lot of the financial intermediaries that distribute the product, both broker dealers and raas and that was really you know kind of the birthday, if you will of of our our market as we know it today. Um, similar to the trajectory of of in the private capital, we saw our industry sort of grow, you know. Building block by building block, sort of organically over, over uh, you know the the early early handful of years. Uh, financial crisis obviously set the industry back a little bit, but then it it came came roaring up you know at the gates. Call it 2012 era, and uh, and and you know when we made the decision to invest in and get into this business, it was very much under the belief that we've got a very powerful provision within the tax code um, that makes a lot of sense for for property owners to consider. And being in a position as an investment management platform to securitize and bring forth that institutional access to investors um, on a a more passive ownership basis, we we believe that was very much a play on demography, right? It it really was going to resonate with that aging baby boomer uh, segment of of, uh, the demographic cohort that was maybe familiar with managing their own properties, but maybe getting to that point in life where they wanted to take more of a, a passive role. And that thesis certainly proved out, and and you know we see the uptake here, and the trajectory has been uh, been very healthy uh, now. Twenty years later, so it's uh, it's been a good business for Inland, for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As uh, as uh, my my friend and business partner Andy Hagen's uh, calls it at AltDB, you were on his podcast a few weeks ago. People get sick of dealing with the three T's, right? Tenants, toilets, and trash, and the the DST structure provides that opportunity for. Conducting a 1031 exchange, but fractionalized ownership and getting the benefits as well of passive ownership, Uh, the 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 tax benefits there are incredible. For I'm I'm sure my my listeners and viewers are pretty familiar with with the tax benefits of essentially getting to defer the gain on your real estate investment properties indefinitely, just keeping continuing to kick that deferral down the road, so to speak. and passing on the, the step-up basis to your heirs upon death, right? Have you guys been focused on tax advantaged real estate investing strategies since your company's inception? Or did that really begin with, with DST investing? Obviously, there are other tax advantaged strategies with just holding real estate in general. But talk to me about how important tax strategies are for your firm.
1: Yeah, I mean, Inland had some some uh, interaction and involvement with with a variety of different tax tax oriented strategies over its you know m- many decades in the industry. As we sort of reorganized the industry, uh, the organization and anchored on Inland Private Capital's growth, yes, our our focus very much is on tax efficient real estate strategies. So, um, obviously, the the DST 1031 structure fits that mold uh, incredibly well, and 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 you know that that's largely why we, we picked up on uh, the legislation that was passed uh, in 2017 with respect to QOZs. And uh, it, it was a very organic, not, not even pivot, it was a, an organic growth opportunity for Inland Private Capital to diversify its, its suite of uh, alternatives that it, it brings forth to investors.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, not, not, not a pivot, really just to move into an adjacent market, I suppose, or right. a, an a nascent market. At that, as well. Um, you're right to point out, the end of 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed and opportunity zones officially became law. The following summer, over 8,700 census tracts were designated as qualified opportunity zones. Uh, this should be no big surprise to my listeners and viewers. I'm sure they've heard this story over and over uh, in, uh, during the past five year period. But uh, as you mentioned, Inland has also gone into that adjacent market. you guys have really been an incredible leader in that space as well as you have been in the DST industry. Can you tell me about that starting point for you? when did inland first become aware of opportunity zones? was it when was it before the legislation was even passed? was it after the legislation was passed? how involved were you with that and 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 how did you get started with opportunity zones eventually?
1: Yeah, it, it was a um, as you said, kind of a natural, organic prog- progression for us. Um, yeah, and, ve- and a very exciting one, by the way. We, you know, it, from a cultural perspective, uh, you know, at Inland, we're trained to be very well-read, have a have a pulse on what's going on in the broader market. Um, in many of in many respects, that that element of research drives investment strategy. But in this instance, um, I mean, we were tracking. You know the what what was ultimately being proposed and we were prepared um as soon as uh, as soon as the legislation was signed into law to to mobilize and 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 start to uh, sort of visualize what what inland branded opportunities might look like um, you know re- develop our our investment thesis around the you know quote unquote rules of the road and um, and so it wasn't all that long before we were in the market with with product that that anchored on, on the qualified Opportunities zone legislation. Um, I, I mentioned it was exciting. I mean, we had already established a very um, healthy uh, pipeline of opportunities on on the DST side of the ledger. Uh, but what's interesting is most DST products are are, are income oriented, stabilized properties. That's just sort of a nuance of the tax provision. You you, you can't do a ten thirty one exchange into a partnership. So obviously, more often than not, that that negates the ability to invest in a development deal, which maybe has a little bit more potential from a total return and IRR perspective on the back end. Um, QOZs, on the other hand, anchor almost exclusively on ground-up development. Uh, you know, substantially improving a piece of property that you buy in one of the designated zones. So um, it was a, it was a really sort of organic but exciting opportunity for us to to parlay. Our suite of income-oriented products, with you know more more growth-oriented development opportunities, and there was no shortage of uh, of, of uh, deal flow that we were kind of already parsing through. And and uh, you know, similar to our DST journey, it was one building block at a time. And and you know, you reflect, you look back a, a couple of years. It's it's always nice to see uh, progress and growth, and that's that's kind of what we've experienced.
0: Yeah, no, that's great of you to point out the the tax advantages or the tax incentives of the two different Structures, if you will, are somewhat similar on the surface. You start with a gain, and you you roll the gain over into uh, the investment vehicle, whether it's QOF, or 1031, or DST, um, and then you get to defer the gain even further. There's there there's that gain deferral mechanism in place. There's a lot of differences when you peel back the onion a little bit, though. And and one of the big differences is the actual uh, risk factors. Uh, of the underlying investments, the DST products are, are core, or core plus assets uh, by nature of the law, as you point out. And with, with opportunities, those they can't be. They can't be core, or core plus. They have to be ground up development or, or opportunistic um, at, at, uh, at the very least, right? Um, so, how did that change uh, for your firm internally? Did you not have a lot of development? Going into opportunity zones, the past few years was that a strategic shift that you made, um, being more development focused? Are, are you guys developers, or do you partner with developers? And tell me more about how that played out when you moved into that OZ arena, being so focused initially on income-oriented products, and now having to make that shift into to growth-oriented products.
1: That was great, great question. And uh, you know, as a investment management platform, we are generally vertically integrated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those terms where basically what I'm saying is we buy, manage, and ultimately finance and ultimately sell assets and, and everything's kind of done, you know, from soup to nuts in, in-house with a handful of exceptions. And as we expanded our, our DST uh, presence, we began to see opportunities in, in areas of the market that we, were, we didn't necessarily believe we had poor competence in. Um, you know more more alternative type categories like like student housing and self- storage um, hotels. And so we had already begun building relationships with strategic partners where on on a stabilized basis for our DST platform, we are identifying opportunities within some of those sectors, um, closing, uh, executing on our on our structure and, and bringing bringing those opportunities to market. So it was a, a fairly organic pivot for us to now, now we had a, a broader reach. Now we, we had the ability to consider um, an investment in something a, a bit more growth-oriented ground-up or, or a redevelopment-type opportunity that maybe wouldn't have previously worked for a DST. And, and you know, that got us started, and we certainly then you know, sort of mobilized and, and began to work toward expanding and finding additional strategic relationships to, to partner with. Um, on the ground up side
0: of the business, yeah, that makes sense. yeah, and uh, having the the cloud that your firm had with the DST space, it, it was only natural that you could evolve into opportunity zones and certainly find those strategic partners. i'm I'm sure uh, you had no shortage of options there, and I'm sure you had no shortage in your pipeline as well. I, I'm curious, Keith, uh, inland is the largest DST sponsor. You have been for, for many years, maybe, maybe going all the way back uh, for 20 years, certainly one of the largest. But but these days you are the largest DST sponsor. How does your DST business compare with your opportunity zone business? Which is a bigger part of your firm's overall business?
1: The DST business still is, is far and away the largest uh, segment of what, what inland private capital does from a from an acquisition perspective, growth and AUM perspective. Um but the op-zone growth trajectory has been pretty remarkable. I mean, you think about it uh, just a handful of years ago, we started at ground zero, and we've already accelerated our growth in, in a short amount of time um, at, at a level and trajectory that eclipses our early growth in the DST market, if that kind of applies apples and apples context. So um, you know, it, it's it's a smaller, smaller piece of the pie, so to speak, but obviously one we're very... Very committed to long term and we still see see a lot of solid opportunity in
0: yeah sure I, I wanted to take a minute actually to uh, to bring something up um, for our viewers to to view if if you're if you're listening to us on a uh, on Spotify or, or Apple uh, forgive me you'll have to switch over to YouTube to check this out but uh, this is this is a chart uh, Keith that shows the equity raised by various alternative investment structures in 2022, last year. And I'm using data both from Robert A. Stanger and Company, uh, which are all of the blue lines here. And then I'm also using data from Novogratic, which is the firm that tracks qualified opportunity funds better than, than anyone else out there and, and really is is really the only the measuring stick that we have for qualified opportunity fundraising at this point. Um, Novogratic tracked $9.7 billion of equity raised in 2022. And by their estimates, they're tracking only about a third to a fourth of the industry. So I extrapolated that to, to get to this $29 billion number, which shows you how much uh, qualified opportunity funds have grown just in a pretty short period of time. They've only been in existence for about four plus years or so. And you know they're already... Hitting up there with non-treated REITs, um, DSTs are, are, meanwhile, kind of on the lower end here still. Uh, nine billion dollars, according to Robert A. Stanger, and you guys are commanding a lot of that nine billion dollar figure. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on on this, but you know, one thing I see is just the potential for qualified opportunity funds to become a larger part of your businesses as, as time goes on, and and also accounting for the fact that we're still so early on. With the Opportunity Zones program, um, I think there's room for it to grow still. But but, but I'm cu- curious your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I think you know when I look at uh, the at the chart, one of the one of the missing pieces is, is you mentioned Stanger is tracking uh, securitized DST capital raise. Uh, but if you were to expand that in a similar way that I think Novogradic did, and maybe made some assumptions around. What the what the capital formation number was, or the the universe of capital formation was, around ten thirty one exchanges. Mm-hmm. That nine billion dollar number would probably be similarly uh, a similarly muted number compared to the broader universe. So I think that if you level set, you know, it does kind of showcase. And my assumption is with Novogradic, they're getting re- more consistent reporting from securitized institutional sponsors and you know, the rest of the universe is probably more, you know, transactions being done on a one-off, you know, outside of the, the institutional realm kind of basis. I think that's so, right.
0: I think that's right. Yep.
1: But no, I, I think you're right. I think the universe, there's a lot of room to run. Um, I think with QOZs or Qualified Opportunity Zones, what's interesting is it's it's any gain. Any any gain is eligible, right? We uh, with, with, with the 1031 exchange, real property has to be sold and then you you can reinvest in real property. And that's, so it's a it's a property, it's a real estate for real estate type trade. Whereas with qualified opportunity zones, um, you, know, you, can, you can trade equities and reinvest your gain from a, from a stock sale into, into a qualified opportunity zone. And that was also a big part of what was so exciting about it is it, it also broadened reach and uh, gave us an opportunity to bring a solution to a broader broader array of clients, not necessarily anchored on just clients that had real estate to sell. And, and gain from that real estate sale to grapple with. So, it's uh, equally powerful provision in the code.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point that it really allowed you and, and and firms like Inland to expand their capital base significantly. I'm kind of curious if you can put any sort of uh, number or, or percentage on on that. What what who who are your investors in your opportunity zone platform? Are, are a lot of them coming from? your DST program? And maybe they have a, a real estate sale and and they see OZs and they think, hey, this is a good solution for me. Maybe I want a little bit more of a growth product in my real estate portfolio. Or, or is it a completely different type of client? Is it someone who sold their stock portfolio or sold a private business? And you guys wouldn't have even been on their radar uh, prior to 2018. And now they've got this option to defer that non-real estate gain. What's what's the breakdown there in terms of those two different types of clients?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It was a question we had to sort of ask ourselves when determining, you know, to what extent it made sense to get into the, the QOZ space. And I got to tell you, we, we've been ple- very, very pleasantly surprised at how, I don't want to say little, because uh, there is some overlap. There is there is uh, you know, we we sell all of our investment products through the financial intermediaries, RAAs, broker dealers, uh, wirehouses. And so as financial planners, they may have the same client that maybe has a different compulsion to look at a different type of client product. So there, there's some overlap, but there's, I would say a lion's share of our capital raise in the QOZ realm was not, was not overlapped. It was not a client that knew us because they were doing DST investments with us. Um, so it did. Broaden our our appeal to engage in conversations, and again, it, our, our narrative is always solution based. So we had a solution for a client that normally maybe wouldn't have had the need to have a conversation with us because we have this uh, this new product that that, that showed a uh, demonstrated a different appeal. So um, it's been it, it's been interesting to kind of see that unfold.
0: Yeah, so de- definitely a different. Type of client, different type of capital base, um, and you mentioned you sell through the broker dealer network, through RIAs, uh, other type of financial uh, intermediaries. You don't sell direct to retail investors. Um, I'm curious, did the OZ? I guess I'll ask that same question, but just just framed a little bit differently. Did the OZ program open up your ability to sell to a broader set of financial advisors, RIAs, broker dealers who maybe had that? OZ type of client that maybe you wouldn't weren't able to unlock with just the DST or, or was that not the case
1: I think the the additional access point definitely opened opened some doors um, inland has it has had a pretty well established uh, distribution network is it but established and growing and so having um, a suite of unique options obviously uh, can help kind of make that that new conversation with a new the new partner uh, more engaging, um, so yeah, we did. We did uh, find a path toward um, engaging with some capital partners that maybe wouldn't have otherwise, or just weren't really focused on on the real estate 1031 exchange side of the equation. Um, I think the the access and the and and the the depth that we had established going in certainly helped us springboard into relevance. Right, we had a lot of intermediaries that. They already knew inland. They knew our investment management team, our thesis, kind of how we did things from an operational standpoint. So we were able to. That was probably a competitive advantage. We were able to hit the ground running uh, out the gate in in ways that maybe a a newer firm that was less familiar with uh, the the retail investor, um, you know, distribution market it would have had probably a little bit uh, steeper hill to climb.
0: Sure, sure. So uh, you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago that. You know, when I was looking when we were looking at that chart, right? I mentioned a few minutes ago that that qualified opportunity funds are kind of holding their their own compared to some of those other alternative investment structures. And I mentioned that hey, they've got a ways to to grow still. But at the same time, it's a perishable tax incentive. And unlike DSTs, uh, opportunity zones are set to expire. No gains accrued after twenty twenty six will be eligible. investment into qualified opportunity funds unless legislation passes that extends the program. And, And that seems to be in doubt. It didn't pass last year. I know Congress is working on some tax legislation toward the end of this year, potentially. But Keith, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what may be the future for Opportunity Zones, or what would you like to see happen unfold in the future for Opportunity Zones?
1: Yeah, the sunset date, you know, the payment of tax in at the end of 2026 has been something that has been on the forefront of I think every investor's mind. And the closer you get to it, the less compelling the deferral is. Right now, right. you still have in uh, the holy grail behind all of this is if you hold an an investment in a QOF for 10 years, you get you get the upside tax free, and that that can that's, that's always going to be there until until 2026 when it when it sunsets. Right. Um, but with respect to extension, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been hearing a lot of the same rumblings. You, you just articulated. Um, I know there was there was talk at one point. There was bipartisan support. Um, my contacts in Washington are have sort of alluded to the fact that, yeah, you know, because this nuanced idea of extension would be part of a broader tax package. Um, the likelihood of of us seeing change at least near term, potentially before the next uh, election cycle, is probably. In not likely, um, but there's been a lot of ebb and flow in that in that conversation. So it's something we continue to monitor. Um, I've never, I mean, we haven't been running the business counting on an extension. I think it would have been it would have been a really nice nice thing to see, and, and I think it would have just um, extended the useful life of, of you know very powerful uh, tax provision and kind of given, given us a little bit more visibility into what the the midterm uh, strategy will be in terms of our bringing new product to market. Uh, so as we sit here in 2023, there's still runway on deferral. Um, you still have the big tax book of invest, pay your tax in 2026, and then tax-free gain on the back end as long as you hold for 10 years. And that, that seems to be compelling investors. Um, and I think it will continue to, um, at least for the duration of 23 and, and, and likely in 24 as well.
0: Yeah, it's still very compelling. That's what I like to tell people. I, you know, there is a misconception Floating around out there with some less sophisticated investors and, and advisors, too. I've, I've heard uh, people say, hey, wait, opportunity zones, didn't that go away a couple of years ago? And, and no, that's not the case. Um, admittedly, every day that goes by, the tax incentive uh, becomes slightly less valuable with that deferral date getting closer and closer. But you're absolutely right, Heath. Point out that 10 year back end escape from capital gains liability on the OZ investments appreciation that's that is the big hook right there that's 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 kind of the the thing that we as an industry need to lead with more often i think well you know with that said keith you know that's one of the challenges i think of opportunity zone investing and raising equity for a qualified opportunity fund is that learning curve for investors that you, a lot of education needs to go into this probably more so this program than with 1031s or DSTs that have been around for, 1031s been around for over 100 years, right? Everybody knows what they are. Certainly the professional advisors are very well versed in how those work, but Opportunity Zones is a little bit newer. So with that said, Keith, what have been some of the biggest Opportunity Zones challenges that Inland has faced in the first few years of the program?
1: I think early on, you know, site selection, uh, kind of familiarizing yeah, familiarizing everyone with, you know, census tracts, where, where, how the lines were sort of drawn. Um, and certainly from an investment perspective, finding, finding opportunities with it that, that fell within those, those uh, op zones that, that also made sense long-term from uh, that, that were investable. Um, I think we, again, had the benefit of some strategic relationships uh, on, on other sides of the, the organization that helped us, you know, springboard into relevance. Um, but then, you know, shortly after the legislation was passed and we kind of got up and running, we found ourselves in a global pandemic, um, which created, you know, supply chain disruption, um, you know, a, a myriad of other issues that that presented challenges for for completing a ground up development site. Um, we were so fortunate to be partnered with groups that, that navigated that brilliantly, uh, but that it certainly didn't make things easier. And then there was uncertainty in the market, volatility meant, you know, w- will there be the types of gains that we were expecting? And I think overall, the industry has kind of navigated that. We're, we're now a couple of years removed. Uh, we saw a, a great run up in the equity markets starting in the, you know, the tail end of 2020. Um, so a lot of the early wrinkles have sort of ironed out, um, but there's always, you know, I think Challenges is, is also opportunity. It's, a, it's an obstacle, but the you, journey has changed to, to go around that obstacle. And that's pervasive in any market. And I think we're, we're at a point where, um, you know, we've established scale and, and, and know-how. And so it probably gets back to your original point. is education, uh, helping people kind of through understanding the tax provision, understanding the investment thesis, kind of pros and cons and pitfalls. And, and that's, that's kind of where we're at today
0: yeah you know one one more challenge I might want to ask you about uh, I guess the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room, so to speak, is twenty twenty two was a rough year. I, I think for for investors overall, right? We had uh, a twin bear market, both um the broad publicly traded stock market was down. Bonds were down. Um alternatives did okay by comparison. um but I, I, I guess I would say, Keith, that um, that. Hang on, I lost my train of thought. We're going to cut this out. <laughs> Where was I get going with this point? Um,
1: oh, I remember. Okay, let me pick it back up.
0: But Keith, uh, my question for you is that you know, with with the with the markets kind of in turmoil, uh, especially in the latter half of of twenty twenty two, we saw less investment. Into DSTs and into qualified opportunity funds in the second part of the year, and and especially in Q4, it seemed like equity raising in both of those structures really slowed down. And has that been a challenge for you, and, and, and do you see more of that continuing in twenty twenty three, or do you see that trend reversing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when you see a softening in cap raise, I mean that's always that always has to be factored into uh, you know investment manager's calculus. Um, so so yeah, that, that is a challenge. I think a lot of it was attributed to, uh, you know, the, the drastic hike in interest rates we saw uh, occur throughout the year. Um, inflation obviously is in the forefront of everybody's mind. That created significant market volatility, which I think there was a fear factor um, that in the traditional markets we saw tremendous loss of value, and 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 will that spill over into the alternative categories? What's been sort of interesting from my perspective is. During that same period of time, we had some of the strongest performance on record in some of these sectors, the strongest performance on record that we've ever seen. I mean rent growth in the student storage arena, uh, the senior living even rebounded. We saw a lot of uh, incredible rent growth in the multifamily arena. So when I reflect on kind of this period of uncertainty and I you try to connect it with past periods, what's significantly different is, yes, there's volatility and uncertainty, but we're performing as a, as, a, as a sector and as a category so remarkable well it, it's it's kind of like when the Fed looks at data but the jobs number just the, the jobs report comes out and it's like no we still have like record level low unemployment and I think that speaks to the resilience that, that the, the broader economy um, really does have under its belt I mean inflation you could speculate whether we really are starting to see it cool or if we've got a longer journey um, but from my perspective and what I, what I just try to remind investors is we look at the world through a long-term lens. Um, real estate investing is, you know, fundamentally long-term in nature. It's meant to perform, and and sort of navigate market volatility. Certain sectors do it better than others. Um, but if we lead that, if we let that kind of be the compass that drives our investment thesis, I I, I believe wholeheartedly in in kind of what we're doing near term. So, I, you know, do I like to see capital raise numbers start to wane? No. But there, it's it's not like we've been gridlocked, right? I mean, we still have uh, meaningful inflows, um, and and you have to be prepared for that type of uh, that type of volatility, that that ebb flow, if you will. So I'm not I'm not necessarily surprised or alarmed by it.
0: Sure, sure. And and now we're sitting here in February of of 2023 uh, on the heels of that twin bear market that I that I just pointed out. Um, so with with all that in mind, that backdrop in mind. Keith, what Opportunity Zone strategies do you really like right now at this moment? Are there any real estate sectors or markets that Inland is particularly bullish on? Where do you like to build? What do you like to build, I guess, for, for your Opportunity Zone strategy? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, and
1: this actually applies to the DSTs as well. I mean, we've really leaned into um, sectors that anchor on demographic demand as opposed to economic driven demand. So. Uh, many of the alternative categories we are we are very bullish on. Uh, we're we're investing heavily in self storage, um, which you know from a performance perspective, yes, you know, it's, it's the four Ds: it's debt, divorce, dislocation, uh, yeah, relocation. You've you've got you've got a lot of different life events that drive the decision to rent storage space. Sometimes those events occur in a down market, sometimes in an up market. But if you look at historic trends, that's a sector that's that's performed incredibly well during periods of dislocation. I'd apply the same to student housing. Um, again, record-setting rent growth and demand. There's a little bit of, a, of, of a, a lack of supply because a lot of construction starts stopped during the pandemic when there was all that uncertainty. So I think that's a sector that has a really, a really good runway. And, and those are the types of uh, you know investment ideas we think about. You, you start with that macroeconomic analysis, and then you you let that kind of trickle down into ultimately site selection deal flow and and that's that's really what we've been doing a lot of uh, not only on the op zone side but also also the DSC side
0: well uh, Keith, I really appreciate all of the DST and opportunity zones insight that you've provided for me and and my listeners as well today. Inland obviously is a leader in the tax advantaged private equity real estate industry. so with that in mind, Keith what are some of the most powerful trends that you see playing out over the next few years across that broader private equity landscape?
1: I think there's going to be, you know, the, the volatility that has ensued as a result of a quick and drastic hike in interest rates um, is going to continue to be pervasive here near term. I mean, right now, uh, the broader market is experiencing this buyer seller friction. And and that's not something that just evolves and is resolved overnight, right? Buyers are still thinking about valuations when interest rates were, you know, 150 points, basis points lower. Buyers are looking at real estate saying, well, my cost of capital has increased. So I have to, I have to adjust pricing. And I think over time that will that will start to uh, come together, but I do think it'll take time in the mean, in the in the interim, I think there's gonna be tremendous buy opportunities. Um, you know, it, it sort of dovetails in my comment about performance I and mean, having the ability to buy an asset that's experiencing the type of growth that we're seeing in certain sectors at a, you know, 100 basis point widening in cap rate. If, if you believe in future growth, which you, which you have to, uh, makes a ton of sense long term. So I think transaction volume is probably going to wane here near term, um, at least, you know, throughout the the first couple of quarters of 23. Maybe maybe even into 24, I think we'll start to see an uptick. Um, I think that the markets are generally healthy. I don't think there's going to be a lot of distressed selling, but I think there's, you know, there, there's going to be that point in time where things open up and that's when, when valuations will really be right-sized in the interim. Um, if you could find a, a seller that's willing to transact and as a buyer, you kind of get your head around uh, the growth trajectory. I think I think there's going be some really good long-term buys and that's, that's sort of what we're leaning into. Um, maybe maybe lower volumes here in near term, but but some very fundamentally sound uh, acquisition opportunities, which which uh, it's our job to scout those and and vet those and and hopefully be in a position to bring those to market. so that's that's what we're fixated on.
0: Excellent, well, uh, Keith, great insights today all across the board. really appreciate you joining me today on this episode of the opportunity zones podcast. before I let you go. can you tell our audience of high net worth investors and advisors? where they can go to learn more about you and Inland Private Capital.
1: Absolutely. Uh, our website uh, is is, is uh, available to the public. So it's www.inlandprivatecapital.com. Um, it's got a full uh, rundown of educational content. Um, you see all of our asset, various assets under management nationwide. So you kind got to get a sense for the types of properties we own and manage on behalf of clients. And uh, and there's contact information uh, for, for individuals on my team and on the site as well. So anybody can uh, learn more on, just by just by visiting our website.
0: Excellent. And uh, for our listeners and viewers out there today, I will, of course, as always have show notes available for today's episode at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there I'll have links to all of the resources that Keith and I discussed on today's show. And please be sure to also subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Keith, again, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, you can find us online at dstdatabase.com. The DST Podcast is available on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and all other podcast listening platforms just hit that subscribe or follow button so you get all of our new episodes as we release them. And we'll be back soon with another episode.